Take your Bibles, if you would, Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7. I get guilty around Christmas time for all sorts of reasons. One of the great reasons is um, I love getting Christmas cards from people. Thank you if you sent us a Christmas card. Really appreciate it. We even pray for you. We keep those cards. We like rotate through them. We pray for you. You will never get a Christmas card from us. We are like the worst Christmas card people ever. Uh, we even took a family picture in the fall, and I thought to myself at that time, like, oh, that'd make a good Christmas card maybe. And like, no, nothing's been done about that. You will not be getting a Christmas card from the Martins. Uh, we love you. We just never express that love. Uh, <laughs> Christmas cards are puzzling to me. I, like... Uh, you, can find, you can get some really strange cards at Christmas time. People, like, it's hard to get a good card. This is part of the reason I don't want to do cards. Some of you have this ability to find Christmas cards that actually have meaning and substance. I go to the store and I find cards that are like, they, they say nothing or they take Bible verses out of context and I, just, you know, I can't live with that. Uh, so I, there's no point trying. But some of you, you, you do a great job. You send great Christmas cards. So appreciative of it. One of the quotations that is awesome often on a Christmas card is Isaiah 7:14. So if you look down at Isaiah 7:14 it says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that looks great on a Christmas card especially the fancy ones those of you who like drop actual money and get the expensive cards uh, looks, that looks amazing. But have you ever, other than this morning when Pat just read it, have you ever actually read the context in which that verse is found? I have, and it has puzzled me for years because it doesn't seem like the place where you would put that particular verse. And clearly, Matthew, the gospel writer, he's going to quote that verse in Matthew chapter 1. We'll get there in a minute. But Matthew sees something in that prophecy that aligns precisely with Jesus Christ. So here's an Old Testament prophecy made to a pretty rotten king, King Ahaz, that Matthew looks at and goes, oh, that's Jesus. That's fulfilled in Jesus. And you kind of look at it and go, Matthew, are you doing what, you know, Pastor Paul says to never do, just, you know, use your Bible like fortune cookies? I don't, are you one of these fortune cookie people? Like you get the first one, you don't like it, and then I'll give it to you, the guy beside you, you open the next one. You're just like looking for the, oh, this is my fortune. <laughs> and, and maybe you treat the Bible like that, like you just kind of flip through verses, you know, and just, I need something for a tattoo. What can I find? And you're, you're just looking for some saying that you, that you want, but you, you don't pay any attention to what it actually means. Matthew, by, by taking this verse, this quotation out of Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew is making one of the boldest statements ever made. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. There are many Old Testament prophecies Hundreds of them, uh, Isaiah 53. Think, you, you can just write off the top of your head. You can think of all these Old Testament written hundreds of years before he came, pointing toward Jesus. But I want to take you to this one because we were here last week when we were in Matthew chapter 1. And in that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew is going to great lengths to prove that Jesus Christ is King Jesus, he's a son of David, 
You get to verse 9 and you read this. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And so it goes. Because in that second group of names, those are all kings. They're the kings of Judah. One king, and then he dies, and his son becomes king, and then he dies, and his son becomes king. Ahaz is one of the sons of David. And it's by these particular kings that Israel is being consistently led astray from God. Their job was to bring people to the Lord, to call the nation into obedience to God, and they're doing the very opposite of that. And one of the worst offenders in that list is this guy Ahaz. You can read about Ahaz in 1 Kings chapter 16, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Not a lot written about him. None of it's good what is written about him. And you can read about him in Isaiah's prophecy as well. And it's that Isaiah prophecy that takes us directly to Jesus Christ. Because not only does, not only does Matthew list Ahaz's name in the names of all the genealogy, but he, he quotes, uh, well, we, either he says it or the angel says it. It's hard to tell what's happening exactly when it transitions back to Matthew. But if you look at Matthew 1.22, I know I told you, Look at Isaiah, keep something there in Isaiah, but look at Matthew 1.22. All this, all what? The, the virgin birth of Jesus, angelic announcements. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that is a lovely fulfilled Prophecy goes nice on Christmas cards, house decorations, I'm all for it. But when you read it in its context, you see that this prophecy is spoken to a rotten king. It seems to come out of nowhere. In fact, when you read it in Isaiah 7, you're going, what, why now and why to this particular guy? Once you read all the verses around Matthew, Isaiah 7... <laughs> You might think that, I kind of think Matthew's doing the fortune cookie thing where he's just picking a line that he likes and applying it to Jesus. But that's exactly what Matthew was not doing when he attributed the fulfillment of this prophecy made to Ahaz when he attributed that to the person of Jesus. And to see that more clearly, we need to look at Ahaz what was going on around him, how he was responding to it. There are four scenes to the story in Isaiah 7. Here's number one. Scene number one, a rotten king with a crumbling kingdom. So Ahaz was an evil king. And the fact that he, of all people, is given this most profound prophecy seems almost out of place until you understand what's going on between Isaiah, the Lord, and Ahaz. So let's start with Ahaz as a king. Uh, quickly, let me give you a brief description. He's an idol worshiper. This is 2 Kings 16. He did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh as God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. So he sacrificed his own son, and the burning in an offering would be to Moloch, the false god Moloch. 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So this is, Ahaz is one of those kings who's worse than the Amorites who had been displaced for their sin by Israel. The Amorites were in the land. God brings Israel in because the sins of the Amorites were so great. This guy's worse than them. Not good. Committed idol worshiper. Secondly, he's a faithless spiritual influence. The good kings, the good kings are the ones that say, come on, Israel, let's live for God. Let's trust in the Lord. Not Ahaz. In fact, Ahaz went up into the, um, the northern kingdom. He went to Damascus. He saw the altar that was at Damascus. It was uh, an altar to a false god. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was made out of clay. He's like, I really like this altar up here in this country that's abandoned Yahweh. I like how they worship. There's their altar. So he makes a model of it and the plans and he ships it down and he has Uriah build that and stick it in the temple of Yahweh. He's one of those guys. He was also a chronic Yahweh rejecter. So instead of looking to Yahweh in his trials, he's looking around at all the territorial deities that surround him, trying to find the one that seems most powerful and sacrifice to him so that I can get what I want. This is 2 Chronicles 28. In the time of his distress, this is Ahaz, he became yet more faithless to Yahweh, this same King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him. <laughs> the gods that beat you. Saying, because the gods of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Yeah, that's great logic. <laughs> but they were the ruin of him and all Israel. It gets worse. Eventually, he bars up the temple. He doesn't let anybody in. He takes all the gold and precious metals that are there, and he sells it off. He rejects Yahweh. He rejects Yahweh. Now, here's the thing. All through his reign, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah are prophesying. They're, they're, they're calling him to obedience. They're calling the nation back to God. And the king is rejecting Yahweh. The days in which he reigned were not good days. This is the day of divided kingdoms. So Israel is made up of 12 tribes. The 10 tribes to the north we'll call the northern kingdom. And the two tribes to the south, the southern kingdom. Tracking? <laughs> and the, the Tribes in the north, they've abandoned Yahweh a long time ago. And it's just the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin down on the bottom that are slightly kind of remaining faithful unless they get a king like Ahaz. During his reign down in the southern kingdom, he's going to face a threat from actually his brothers in the northern kingdom who are going to get together with somebody else in order to come and just dominate them, take them over. And so his kingdom is a weak kingdom, it's a crumbling kingdom, and it's exactly there where his story intersects with Jesus Christ, who's going to be born, think of this, 700 years later. That takes us to scene two. A godly prophet with a pointed message. A godly prophet with a pointed message. So... 
I mentioned this political upheaval that's going on in Ahaz's reign. It's right in the middle of that, with godless King Ahaz, that Yahweh sends a message to him through the prophet Isaiah. So, the th- the, well, let's read it. Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, got to remember that name, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, two kings, came up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up because Jerusalem's on a hill, so you never go down to Jerusalem. You were always going up. They go up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Don't know why. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Syria, foreign, powerful nation. Ephraim, another name for the northern kingdom. Israel, Ephraim, same thing. So, verse 2. When the house of David is told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, they've joined forces, the heart of Ahaz in the southern kingdom, Judah, and the heart of his people, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Kids, that's something you can like, the next time your sister, you scare her or something, you can just look at her and say, you're shaking like the trees of the forest in the wind. It'll be very impressive. So Ahaz's problem here, it's a big problem, was that the 10 tribes to the north have joined forces with the Syrians and they're going to attack in the southern kingdom. And he's shaken in his kingly boots. Verse 3, Yahweh said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Shearjashub means a remnant shall return. Which, by the way, if you're currently pregnant and thinking of names, not the the Hebrew name, go with the English name, a remnant shall return. You say, a remnant shall return, it's time for dinner. Does anybody know where a remnant shall return? Put the remote. Uh, it's, 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 It's a peculiar name. It was intended to be a peculiar name, but that's what it would have sounded like. Like we hear, it doesn't mean anything to me. A remnant shall return means something to you. And so every Hebrew ear, when they hear, that's what they hear. A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. This this chapter is full of oddly named sons. But Isaiah is instructed to go to this unbelieving king Ahaz with his oddly named portent-like son and tell Ahaz... King Ahaz, do nothing. Don't do anything. That's the message. Verse four, he said, say to him, this is the message to give him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. So, 
The king is out at the conduit, probably preparing the conduit to make sure that there would be a water supply when the siege starts. I mean, the enemies are just outside the gates of the city. And he's probably working on the conduit. We've got to make sure we have a water supply or we'll all, you know, die. And Isaiah shows up. Don't know how old his son is. He's standing there beside him. And his message to that king, probably see the foreign army just over there getting ready. His message is, don't do anything. Don't fear. Be quiet. See those two kings, the king of Israel, the northern tribes, king of Syria, they look like a really big threat to you right now, but in my view, they are smoking stumps. You know what a stump is? Cut down a tree, everything left is a stump. Stumps are hard to get rid of. If you have ever tried to remove a stump from your, hand, or from your land, just raise your hand. You probably can't because you broke your arm trying to do it. Stumps are difficult to get out. And one way in which you might do that is to light it a fire. This is a common technique. You're clearing land to farm and you, you burn it out. That's the imagery that God is using here. These two kings are smoking stumps. There's hardly anything left to them in my view of them. In, in Yahweh's evaluation, Rezin and Pika are nothing. Even though they don't look like that way, they don't look like that to King Ahaz. Right now, they're the superpowers. They're powerful. They're threatening. So imagine that your King Ahaz, the prophet shows up with his son, the remnant shall return. Hmm. And he tells you the command from Yahweh is to be quiet, to not fear, and to trust in me. Trust in Yahweh, who has sent you this prophet to speak to you, this prophet with the son whose name is a remnant shall return. But there's more. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. What's not going to stand? Judah getting conquered by Rezin and Pekah. Not going to happen. Not going to stand. Why? And this, this is a little, just not as common how we would speak, but common in the day. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Let me just unpack that for a second. So verse 8 and verse 9, you'll see they're kind of parallel, right? Verse 8, the capital city of Syria is Damascus, and the ruler of Damascus is this man, Rezin. Verse 9, the capital city of Ephraim in the northern kingdom of Israel is Samaria, and the ruler of Samaria is Pekah, but he's not called Pekah here. He's called the son of Remaliah, which is kind of just a way of uh, dissing him. <laughs> I won't even call you by your name. I'll call you after the name of your father. So, all right, okay, geographical lesson, political lesson, great. This is the capital, this is the capital, this is the king, this is the king, what's in the middle? And within 65 years, this is verse 8, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. In less than a normal lifetime of 65 years, the northern kingdom that is so threatening to you right now, King Ahaz, will be gone. 
They will be shattered as a people, which they were around 720 B.C., not very long from these days in which the prophet is speaking to Ahaz. They're hauled off into captivity, never to return, which is why Isaiah, the prophet, looks King Ahaz right in the eye and says, verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is a little play on words that, again, just a little tricky to get into our English language. It's a, the, the New International Version translates it this way. I think it's good. If you do not stand firm in your faith, indeed, you will not stand at all. It's like the Lord is looking at Ahaz and saying to him, I've given you a message. I've told you that that huge army out there, that superpower that looks like it's going to completely destroy you is going to be destroyed. You're not supposed to do anything. Just be quiet. Just wait. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you don't stand firm in your trust in Yahweh right now, you will not stand firm in your position in the future. I am telling you that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are not to be feared. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be removed. Now, believe in faith the message I just told you, King Ahaz. How do you know somebody believes something? They act on it. Whatever you do, believe. Have faith in what I told you. Do nothing. And whatever you do, do not form a political alliance with a nation like the Assyrians. Which is exactly what Ahaz is planning to do. The Assyrians are different than the Syrians. The Assyrians are kind of on the outskirts still. Typically, when one nation would threaten you, you'd look around for another stronger nation to call on them to come and save you, and that generally involved giving them a lot of your land or a lot of your people or a lot of your money. It wasn't for free. But Judah, what's left of Israel, those two tribes, they're not a typical nation. When they get attacked by enemies that are too strong for them, they're not to cry out to Assyria. They're to cry out to who? To Yahweh. So what, what is, what's Yahweh doing through the prophet right here with Ahaz? He's, he's giving him a challenge, really. Ahaz, turn to me, not Assyria, and trust my promise. You will not fall to the northern kingdom and Syria. They will be removed. They will be destroyed. Do you know where Moldova is? Right beside Ukraine. And uh, I'm sure if you were living in Moldova and watching Russia's war against Ukraine and quite nervous about that, and then word trickled out to you that, lo and behold, Russia and the United States of America have formed a pact, and they're going to join together and invade Moldova. Moldova is a very tiny nation, comparatively. And, and you'd be shaking in your boots if you got that message. And what if somebody stood up and said, be quiet, 
be still. Russia, America, they won't even be countries anymore 60 years from now. Nothing's going to happen. All right, my Moldovan friends, what would you say? All right. Or, are you out of your mind? Because those are the superpowers. You're telling me to do nothing when they're right there? Would you believe the prophet? What do you think it was like for Ahaz to hear the message from Isaiah? I I can see the army. (laughs) I know they're coming. And you're telling me to do nothing? Before, Before King Ahaz can say anything, another word comes to Isaiah, verse 10. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, we presume through Isaiah, ask a sign of Yahweh, your God. Let it be as, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. That takes us to scene three. A terrible response to a wonderful offer. A terrible response to a wonderful offer. Here's God speaking through the prophet to King Ahaz telling King Ahaz, the rotten King Ahaz, the idolater Ahaz. Got news for you, these giant superpowers are not going to win. And God knows that sounds too good to be true, like the Moldovans getting a message. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to believe that? So God makes this incredible offer to King Ahaz. King Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a visible confirmation of any kind to verify that this word I have spoken is true. In fact, ask anything you like. The sky is the limit, literally. Let it be as high as the heavens. Now we need to pause for a moment, and this will help you. So if you've, if you've drifted a little bit, this is a good point to lock back in, because this will help you be really happy at Christmas, okay? Uh, Old Testament signs. A sign can be used in two ways. This is the helpful part. As a present persuader, or as a future confirmation. Present persuader, future confirmation. Let me give you an example. I'll give you an example from the life of Moses. So Moses is on the mountain being called by God at the burning bush to come and, or rather to go and get God's people out of Egypt. That's quite an amazing thing, especially when you have a criminal record there for homicide. (laughs) So the Lord, first of all, does a present persuader sign. This is Exodus 3 and 4. God tells Moses, look, I know it sounds impossible that you're just, you alone are going to go there and bring a whole people out of slavery, but I'm going to empower you to use the sign of a staff turning into a snake. Remember that? He throws down the staff and it turns into a snake. 
That is a sign. It's called a sign. And that's a present persuader. The purpose of that sign is to persuade Moses to let the people go. God says, Exodus 4, 8, if they'll not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the second sign. He has given signs, things he can do that verify his message. Those signs are meant to persuade in the present Pharaoh to a certain course of action. Now, we know they didn't work. Secondly, God uses this word sign in the sense of a future confirmation, not a present persuader. I remember this verse when we were preaching through the book of Exodus. Exodus 3.11, Moses asks God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, here's the sign, but it's not, it doesn't happen until later. (laughs) It's, It's sort of, it's a peculiar answer. So he's standing before, the God, before God at the burning bush. He, he's very doubtful that he's the man that God wants to use to do this great rescue. So he tells, you know, who am I to do this? And God promises a sign to Moses to verify the truthfulness of his promise that he's going to rescue Israel out of Egypt through Moses. But it's not a sign in the present. He doesn't say, I'll make this other bush burn. <laughs> it's, it's a sign in the future. It's something that's going to happen after this is all done, after God's promise to deliver his people out of Egypt has happened. Moses will get the future confirmation sign, and the proof, the sign is, verse 12, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. Here's the sign I'm giving you now, Moses. When everything I've said has happened, you'll be right back here with all God's people. That's the sign. A future, right now, a future confirmation of God's words. Make sense? So, I hope that wasn't a sign. Uh, A sign can be a present persuader. Or a sign can be a future confirmation. Now, all of this, I think, is going to help you understanding what's going on in Isaiah 7 because the same thing happens in Isaiah 7. The word sign appears a couple of times, but it's being used in different ways. And once you see this, friends, you're going to be so excited to get that Christmas card. Okay, here we go. First of all, uh, God's offer... To give a sign to Ahaz is meant to function as the present persuader. I just told you that that army's not going to invade. I am offering you a sign. Ask me to do something that will help you believe that what I just said is true. Israel and Syria are not going to destroy you. Ahaz refuses to take the offer of a sign, the the present persuader sign, and God comes back with, he gives to Ahaz a future confirmation sign that that's actually going to happen. So when that sign occurs, whatever that future confirmation sign is, when it occurs, 
It's going to remind everybody of this day in Isaiah chapter 7, the day when Yahweh held back the Israel-Syrian invasion. He judged Ahaz for his unbelief. That was the invasion that seemed absolutely inevitable. When that future sign occurs, it'll be proof that what God said would happen, happened. So let's deal with the first sign first, the present persuader version of a sign. The offer of the present persuader sign to King Ahaz is a challenge to his lack of faith. It was as if God said to Ahaz, ask for anything you want. I'm God. I can do anything. Ask me for anything. The sky's the limit. Put my power to the test. And Ahaz says, verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ah. It is easy to misunderstand the answer that Ahaz gives as something very pious and godly. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I would never put the Lord to the test. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, maybe you read that and you say, oh, yeah, but remember like uh, Psalm 106, 14. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. That's true. People can put God to the test. Massa, Meribah, unhealthy craving. What was going on there? Well, I'll tell you what was going on there. Israel was demanding God do what they ask. It wasn't God offering to do something for them as he is here with Ahaz. Is it wrong to test God? Of course it is. But that's not what Ahaz would have been doing by responding in faith to God's offer to show him a sign. Ahaz's refusal to take up God's offer of a sign is proof of his unbelief, not his piety. You can't, you can't put God to the test by asking for a sign because it was God who just offered to give him a sign. And Ahaz dresses up his answer in religious words meant to sound all pious and spiritual, but it's, it's full of hypocrisy. I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. There is no way that doing what Yahweh asks is putting Yahweh to the test. One tests God in that negative sense when they refuse to believe he will provide for them, such as the waters of Meribah and Massa, where Israel grumbled, complained, rather than responding with prayer and obedience based on all the miracles they had already seen. You know, just things like the Red Sea parting. The irony here is rich indeed. By saying, I will not put God to the test, Ahaz is putting God to the test. Now think of this. Here is this despicable king, an idolater, a man who sacrifices his own children on the, on the altar of a foreign god, and yet he's, he's a son of David, and God had made covenant with David, and so because of that, God, out of his abounding patience, out of his great promise-keeping character, puts this incredible offer right on the table before Ahaz, And in doing so, calls his bluff. If you told me that you wanted to live on the bridal path here in Toronto, really nice homes on the bridal path, 
And uh, he said, yeah, my lifelong dream is to live on the bridal path. And I had a secret stash of money. I don't. But if I did, and I went out and I bought like the nicest home on bridal path, and I brought the title deed, and I put it down, and I said, it's yours. I bought it for you. All you have to do is sign. And you refused. Then you are showing me by your actions that you don't really want to live on the bridal path. Or if you do, you don't want to trust me to get you there. Ahaz is the king of Judah. There is a sense in which God is at his disposal. Every king of Judah, who, even the bad ones, who eventually turned to God for help in real faith and real humility, every single one of them was met with help from the Lord. Ahaz's great, 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 great grandfather, Jehoshaphat, is a great example of that. Surrounded by the Ammonites and the Moabites, he calls on the whole nation to gather together. They pray, they fast, they throw dust in the air. They don't know what to do. In fact, that's what they say in their prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's where that ends. <laughs> they get up in the morning, and those armies had turned upon themselves and killed each other. There wasn't even a battle to fight. The Lord did that. Ahaz had many kingly ancestors who had turned to Yahweh, that it, who had proven that Yahweh would help the king of Judah in the time of need. But Ahaz has no interest in that because of who he is, where his heart leans, the false gods that he's loyal to. Ahaz had all the privilege and none of the reality of a relationship with God. Kids, Look around you for a minute. You can actually stand up if you want. Just look around you. Look at all the people. See the people? People. Lots of people. These people are all coming back tonight. You can sit down now. Okay, really, you'll be looking for hours. Uh, these people are all coming back tonight for the Grace Kids celebration. It's going to be lovely. We come because we love you, and we want to be here and support you and encourage you. One of the things you could do with all these grown-up people tonight is ask them something like this. How did you become a Christian? And you will find out that some of those people grew up in a church just like this one, or maybe even this one. And you will find other people who said, no, I'd never heard about Jesus, never, never been to church my whole life, and then I, I just, some friend of mine at school or at work told me about Jesus, and God opened my heart, and I repented, and I believed. But all of them will tell you, will eventually tell you that. Yeah, I repented of my sins and I trusted in Jesus, King Jesus. But I've known a lot of kids who can be like King Ahaz. They grow up hearing all these remarkable things about God's great work in their parents' lives and their friends' lives and their friends' friends and their cousins and their uncles and aunties and grandpas and grandmas. But they don't believe. Like Ahaz, they turn away from God. They don't trust God. That was Ahaz. Ahaz, Ahaz knew what God could do. He just, he just wanted no part of it. Is that you? You know what God could do, but you really don't want any part of it. That's not a good place to be, friend. 
God is about to offer Ahaz everything. He basically says, ask me whatever you want as a sign and I'll do it. Anything you want. And Ahaz refuses to ask. My little friends, God has offered you the greatest thing of all, Jesus Christ. But if you refuse to ask, he won't be yours. Don't be like Ahaz and walk away and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm too rotten to be, ever be a Christian. Or, I don't, you know, I don't really think I could ever be good enough. Those are, those are silly things. Jesus tells everybody to come and to believe, have faith. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. It's, it, I've never read it. I, I can't find it in my Bible where it says, come to me some. Come to me good kids. Come to me kids who grew up in a Christian family. Oh, so it's all. It's all. Everybody. Everybody come. You'll find rest for your soul. When you look at King Ahaz, you may want to just ask, am, am I like Ahaz? King Ahaz refused the generosity of God because he refused the sign. And, and look at how God answers him. You're not going to take my offer, my generous offer? Then I'll shove another one in your face. I hope that doesn't sound like bad, but, but basically I'm trying to make, that's what's going on here. <laughs> you, you don't want a present persuader sign? Then I'm going to throw a future confirmation sign right in your face, Ahaz. You should have done what I told you to do. I'm going to give you the greatest sign of all. A sky is the limit kind of sign. Number four, scene four, a glorious promise to a faithless denier. So now we move from sign as a present persuader, ask anything you want, to sign as a future confirmation. He said, here then, O house of David, that's Ahaz's family, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you, Ahaz, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which everybody who heard that said, God, in their brain went, God with us. There's our verse. Ahaz's unbelief is met with the judgment of a sign that will not be fulfilled in his lifetime, but will be 700 years from now. The sign of the virgin being with child. Not intended to persuade Ahaz in the presence. That sign is gone. This is the future confirmation sign, and when it happens, it will confirm that everything Isaiah said, or God said through Isaiah would happen in Ahaz's day, it happened. It's, it's as if God is saying, you, you think that this nation is going to be invaded by the northern kingdom in Syria. That's what you think is going to happen. In fact, they're camped on your borders right now, aren't they? Yeah. But I, Yahweh, say it will not happen. You refuse to ask me for the sign in the present which I offered you to persuade you of the truthfulness of that promise. 
You refuse that, therefore I will give you a future confirmation sign, a sign that's gonna happen that will testify to the truthfulness of my promise in that day. What is that future confirmation sign? That a virgin, a woman who has had no sexual relations will conceive. That same woman will give birth to an actual son and that son will be given his own unique name or title, Emmanuel. And when that happens, it will verify what I said in 750 BC or so. There never was uh, uh, any Syrian northern kingdom invasion. In fact, the northern kingdom in just a few short years from now gets hauled away into a captivity and it never returns. In other words, what God says will happen, happens. What an interesting sign. What an interesting future confirmation. There's Isaiah standing at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. He's looking faithless, selfish, idolater, King Ahaz right in the eyes. Everything's preaching before he speaks. My name, Isaiah, it means the Lord is salvation. My son is here, Shear Jashub. His name means a remnant shall return. And one of your sons, Ahaz, will be called Emmanuel, God with us. You could have asked for a very good great sign to persuade you in the present and you didn't. So on behalf of God, I will give you the greatest sign of all in the future. He will send his own son to save his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And before Emmanuel's birth, Israel, Judah, hauled away into captivity, but the remnant is brought back into the land of Palestine They're in the land, but it's not their land. They're only a shadow of who they used to be. They're living under Roman dominion. And when Emmanuel is born, it's not in a castle, it's in a stable. And there is one sense where the reason for King Jesus being born in poverty and political domination with no castle was Ahaz. For Ahaz after this exchange with Isaiah, becomes just a vassal, a puppet leader. He rejected Yahweh. He turned to Assyria. Yahweh rejected him as he said he would, proving the warning that he gave through Isaiah. If you do not stand firm in your trust in Yahweh, you will not stand firm in your position as Yahweh's king. Now, I have no doubt that this prophecy in Isaiah 7, has puzzled Jewish scholars for centuries. It is amazing to read the literature on this one verse where everybody bends over backwards to try and make it say what it doesn't say. But Matthew read it. And Matthew, who's writing to primarily a Jewish audience, not exclusively, but primarily knowing that they would have the context for these verses, he picks up Isaiah 7. He goes, guys, guys, guys. Here's the answer to the riddle. Jesus. The thing God told Ahaz would happen, happened. If you're you're in Matthew, look at Matthew 1, verse 20. Uh, Joseph, as he considered these things, that his uh, fiance was pregnant and he was going to divorce her and quietly. 
As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in the flesh. God, God, God in our flesh. When Jesus arrives, God affirms what he had told Ahaz. No political alliance can save you. No false worship can save you. No idolatry can save you. No child sacrifice can save you. Only my son can save you. The king of kings who came to do what every king before him could not do, which is to bring us all the way to God, or as the angel put it, save his people from their sins. It takes God to get us to God. It takes God becoming man to do it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. God with us then. God with us now. God with us forever. When we will be with him visibly, Physically, eternally, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man in that day. He will dwell with them, mankind, and they, mankind, will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Emmanuel, God with us. Look, wicked Ahaz heard all this, pressed on in his unbelief and in his idolatry, but that didn't stop Yahweh from accomplishing his saving work through his son. And even though that actual work was seven centuries into the future, God tells the godless king now, nothing is going to stop me from saving my people. Not unbelieving kings, not faltering dynasties, not Roman occupations, not centuries of sins and trespasses and iniquities, not even your pathetic rejection of a confirmation sign in the presence. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Are you one of his children? Are you one of his sons, one of his daughters? Can you say, Jesus is my brother, God is my father? Back in Matthew, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That name means Yahweh saves. That's a good name. That's what he was called by men. But he was given many other titles, wasn't he? Emmanuel, God with us. Christ, the anointed one. Or as Isaiah referred to him later, wonderful counselor. Everlasting father. 
Prince of Peace, Almighty God. Friend, if you get a Christmas card this year, which includes Isaiah 714, let your heart soar with hope. God keeps his promises. Because what Isaiah told faithless Ahaz came true 700 years later. Just like everything else he has told us will come true at some point in the future. What God says will happen will happen. And the proof of God's trustworthiness and reliability is the birth of his own son. God came down to men and dwelt with us, the creator with the created, that he might take care of all of our sin and our guilt, all of our problems, not because of anything in us, rather because he loved us. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, the glorious promise of Emmanuel came to every faithless denier, every Ahaz, even you. If you will turn and believe, and I am... 1,000% certain of it because everything God says will happen, happens. So when he says, whoever believes in him should not perish, that's true. You believe, you will not perish. May God make it so for you. Let's pray together. Father, give us soaring confidence in all of your word. Grant us greater hope in our Lord Jesus. For those of us who know you, we pray for greater delight in you as we ponder afresh your fulfilled promises and we take greater hope in the promises yet to be fulfilled. And for my friends who are here who do not know Jesus, have maybe heard about him, maybe even attended churches for many, many years, but have no true, real relationship with Jesus because they've never repented from their sins, they've never really believed. There's the promise, Lord. All who believe will be saved. And since you told us, we pray that you would do this work, enable belief in the unbelieving Right now, we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and sing together, friends.